Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And here we are on episode number 20 of Talking Biotech. And uh, today's episode, if we had to give it a subtitle, might be Ain't That Sweet? Because uh, something that is sweet to the palate and something sweet to the science. Uh, the second part of today's podcast will be an interview with Dr. Lee Pinella from the USDA ARS. And uh, he's a sugar beet breeder. And we use sugar beets for food and for fuel. Uh, we come in contact with them all the time. And yet we know very little about this crop that has a fascinating history, uh, domestication as well as, uh, as well as its current production. And we'll talk about him, talk to him, <laughs> don't talk about him, we'll talk to him in the second part of the podcast today. But first, we'll talk to Dr. Carl Haro von Mogel from biofortified.org, um, Biology Fortified. Uh, Carl and I have discussed an experiment for a long time to test one of the Internet's greatest claims. And he'll be with us in the first part of the podcast today to talk about this experiment and, more importantly, how you can be involved. So, without taking up further time, we'll move right along to our first interview with Dr. Carl Haro von Mogel from Biology Fortified. So, today on the Talking Biotech podcast, we're starting out with a citizen science experiment. And this is a way that you can actually participate in testing, something that we typically see on the internet. And interlaced on the internet, we frequently see these these demonstrations of corn, which apparently some squirrels and mice and rats and things will refuse to consume because it's transgenic or because it's genetically engineered. Yet they seem to like alternative choices, especially the organic ones, just fine. Well, to most of us in science and most of us who've watched animals around our yards, um, they'll pretty much eat anything that's put out there. Uh, I was talking to uh, with uh, Carl Haro von Mogel, who and Carl is here with me online. He's the uh, Science and Media Director of BioFortified. And uh, Carl, are you there? How are you doing tonight? 
Hey, Kevin. It's great to be here, and I'm doing great. I had a caramel apple earlier. Okay, that's that's kind of a sign of fall. Um, yeah. But another sign of fall is the uh, presence of uh, corn that we can harvest and uh, potentially use in experiments. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the beginning of this conversation and uh, maybe some of the backstory to why we discussed doing what we're about to do. Yeah, great. I'm, uh, I'm happy to do so, Kevin. So uh, when you're talking about genetically engineered crops, you know, you're usually talking about something that it's sort of on a farm, far away, remote, uh, unless you're a farmer who's actually growing it. And there are a few opportunities for the uh, uh, average member of the public to get involved in the science and actually do something hands-on. And so Kevin and I were, were musing about this and thinking, and we're thinking, you know, we there are all kinds of things out there that would be easy to to do a, a study on and let people participate in. And uh, so we thought about what would be one of the most interesting and, and fun ones to start with. And uh, we decided on this, uh, uh, this GMO corn experiment. If you put GMO corn experiment into a, a Google image search, you'll see these pictures that Kevin was talking about. You'll see pictures of ears of corn, and uh, they're both stuck up on a tree. One of them is labeled as GMO. The other one is labeled something else, non-GMO, organic, something. And miraculously, the non-GMO one is completely consumed and just devastated by the squirrels. And the GMO one is sitting there looking perfect, like they're completely ignoring it, like they don't consider it to be food. And I, I've talked to uh, several maize uh, researchers and asked them, hey, is this the kind of experiment you would spend uh, your, your laboratory time doing to find out whether or not this is real? And they've all told me no. But yet, there are no studies. There's no way we can actually say, hey, we know that this doesn't happen. They're just anecdotes on the internet so kevin and i thought why don't we make it possible for hundreds of people to do this experiment and to do it right so that we could actually get data not anecdotes but data and then publish it and we could all be part of one massive experiment and that's really cool and for me it's a little bit personal too because i see people like don huber and others who don huber even mm -hmm. says uh, it says uh, squirrels and animals will not touch GMO corn. And he's made those kinds of statements. And at the same time, he's the one who says that, you know, glyphosate is killing people and that uh, there's an organism inside GM crops that is, you know, leading to cattle um, uh, abortions and problems in humans. And so what I would like to get to the bottom of is the people who say that this is uh, that GM corn is ref is uh, refused by animals, I'd like to really kind of uh, hold them accountable. Now, of course, this is an experiment, and we're going to test the hypothesis, and I'm making a, a conclusion without the data. Um, mm -hmm. it, they could be correct, and that's what we really want to test. Now, in my experience, I've put corn outside, um, and whether it was GM field corn or whatever it was, um, it usually is gone within... 45 minutes because <laughs> oh yeah you know squirrels in the winter are kind of looking for whatever they can sink their teeth into so. and i don't think those bags of squirrel corn at the hardware store are necessarily premium field corn they're probably even gmo 
Well, they're probably the um, cast-offs of uh, what falls through the grate somewhere at a processing plant. And it's perfectly fine corn, just uh, something that uh, can be bagged and used in a semi-premium sense. And my guess is is that it's probably transgenic corn. And um, But, uh, you know, of course, we haven't done the test. And we're going to let the science do the talking, as we should. And um, so what's our hypothesis of this experiment? So we are testing the hypothesis that wild animals, such as squirrels, uh, uh, chipmunks, deer, and such, prefer non-GMO corn and will avoid GMO corn if given the choice. And that's that a very it's a very testable hypothesis. And we'll um, and so tell me a little bit about the method that we'll use um, to do that without getting into the details of how people will participate. What's the method that we'll use to do the test? Yeah, so we thought to replicate what uh, we're seeing in those pictures, and it's a, a very good uh, visual setup. And we're going to have a piece of wood. And there are going to be two uh, two nails sticking up, and there will be an ear of corn on each of those nails, and it'll be uh, 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 one of them will be a an ear of genetically engineered corn, and the other one will be an ear of non genetically engineered corn. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, we wanted to be very careful about is that we're using the right materials for this. The genetically engineered corn is a multi trait stacked corn. So it's got a bunch of BT transgenes, it's got herbicide tolerance transgenes, and uh, so it's got just about every trait you can imagine in corn right now. And so if it's any one of those traits that might cause this, uh, this avoidance that we're looking to test, then we should be able to see it. Also, the, 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 the two varieties of corn were grown in plots in Hawaii, and they were uh, the non-GMO corn was uh, grown right next to the GMO corn, just far enough away that they wouldn't cross-pollinate. And the GMO corn was sprayed with Roundup, just like a, a farmer would. So if somebody's thinking that maybe it's the Roundup spraying that might cause this avoidance somehow, we've got that covered as well. So what we're going to do is just have uh, everybody get one of these kits. And you can do two experiments and set up the ears, and they'll be barcoded and blinded, and you set them out and come back a day later uh, and take a picture and see uh, how much has been eaten. And then we'll gather together hundreds of experiments from hundreds of volunteers and assemble that data together and see uh, whether or not we can confirm or disconfirm this hypothesis. And uh, the it should be mentioned that you mentioned the stacked line and the non-transgenic um, counterpart, but they're also isogenic lines. Yes. So these so, are so in other words, these are genetically identical except for the um, GMO version or the genetically engineered yeah. transgenic version has the transgenes added. So we're doing a straight comparison of something that's genetically engineered versus something that's not, but otherwise genetically identical. And how yeah. are we going to verify that these are indeed transgenic plants and not transgenic, or transgenic corn and not transgenic corn? Yeah, so uh, when we're uh, done with the experiment, we're going to save a few of these ears, and then we're planning to, if we have the, uh, the funds to be able to do so, to then uh, we can check the ears 
from each of these these batches that we got to make sure that uh, the GMO ones are GMO, the non-GMO ones are non-GMO. And uh, depending upon how much other uh, funding we get, we may be able to do something like a composition test. Because if there is a difference, well, maybe there could be some difference in the composition, the the nutritional content or something else in the corn that could uh, uh, be the cause of that or be the way that the uh, presence or absence of uh, the the transgenes gives this effect. Exactly. And and especially today when we've seen uh, campaigns online by various groups who said that this corn should be full of uh, uh, formaldehyde and glyphosate and should be mm-hmm. absent with any carbon um, that we should. You know, <laughs> if those things are true, comparison. if those are true, um, then we should see an effect on the feeding. And so we'll do this test, and um, I'm excited to do it. The other important part yeah. of this that I would love you to chime in on here is this is not a flash-in-the-pan idea we had last week. Um, no. This goes back, um, those of you who've observed the FOIAD email stream, know that this goes back at least a year or so to when uh, Carl and I were having interactions with the Monsanto company about providing this material. And yeah. could you touch on that just a little bit? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is actually, this has taken a lot of planning. So uh, we contacted, uh, after we had the, got this idea and we're like, we're going to do this, we contacted the Monsanto company to ask them if they could give us materials that we could use for this experiment. And so uh, we talked to them and gave them a, a sample protocol and talked about what it would take to get a material transfer agreement from them. And uh, because Kevin's at the University of Florida, they just go, yep, whatever you want to do, no problem. Because um, I'm, doing the, I'm doing this through Biology Fortified. Then we had to go through, well, what's the experiment going to be? And then, uh, uh, then they drafted a material transfer agreement to do it. So then we talked about, you know, what materials do we need? And I explained to them what is the, uh, the thing we're testing. And so I asked for, you know, can we get isolines? Um, can we get whole ears, not the kernels, but whole ears harvested off the plant and uh, and get as many traits as possible in the transgenic corn and also have it sprayed with Roundup just like a farmer would. So then no matter what the difference might be between the GMO and the non-GMO, that if we uh, if if there are any of those differences could cause this this squirrel avoidance, then we'd be able to see it. They they planted a plot of of maize at their station in Hawaii. Sent us pictures of the uh, corn as it was growing. They're providing us the uh, the spray schedule for what it's been sprayed with. We'll add that to the publication, so then everybody will be able to see this is how the corn is raised. If they wanted to repeat the experiment exactly, then they would be able to do that. And uh, then uh, finally, as we're getting to the fall again. Uh, we've been informed they've harvested the ears. They've got them packed up in boxes. And uh, they are, as of now, uh, preparing to deliver one literal ton of ears of corn, 2,000 pounds of corn, <laughs> are on their way to my humble domicile. <laughs> and your driveway, I hear. Yes, they will be planted on my driveway, or perhaps when you uh, listen to this, you you may already be able to find pictures of me freaking out about all this corn on my driveway. 
And it's kind of funny because it does also dispel the rumor that, uh, you know, the big ag companies, you know, you can't do experiments. The corn is not available to uh, researchers. I mean, here we are proposing, you know, not some high-end research project, but actually one of the more fundamental tests you can do. Does, does a squirrel notice the difference or not? And I think a company could very easily say this is a ridiculous experiment. Why would you want to do this test? Why would you waste our time? Cost us mm-hmm. a ton of money. And when you think yeah. about you know the harvesting all this, growing it for us, growing a ton of corn, and then delivering a ton of anything to your driveway, they're very interested in uh, in in allowing us to go forward with this. And and I I, I think that says a lot. At the same time. Uh, I don't know that we're um, in any position where we're going to just blindly trust what they send us. And Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to do those tests where we're going to uh, rigorously uh, evaluate. Is the transgene there? Are the transgenes there? Um, Do an independent confirmation of the transgenes that are present and um, on on ears that are randomly selected. And uh, then we'll uh, be shipping out the rest of them to our volunteers that are excited to take part in the project. So why don't you tell us about how people can volunteer to take part in this work? Yeah, sure. Actually, I'd like to add one thing to what you're just saying about this whole process that we've been learning about this process of doing of putting together this material transfer agreement. Uh, it, if somebody tells you that Monsanto says, well, this is the agreement, take it or leave it, that's actually not the end of the discussion because when they sent us the first drafts, of the material transfer agreement, they had uh, different ideas as to how this experiment would work. And that said, this is being provided to you and don't hand it off to anyone else. And I'm like, hang on, wait, you do know that we are going to be mailing these ears to hundreds of people. And they're like, oh, oh yeah. And then they go, went back and changed that. And also, you know, don't put anything online uh, without telling us 60 days before you do so. And we're like, uh, you realize this is going to happen through social media. Oh, oh yeah. So, they, you know, they are actually modifying the, the MTA uh, based upon the needs of this experiment, and and have been happy to do so. It's actually so, really, it's actually really cool because you, when we think about companies and their attorneys, how these kind of monolithic boilerplate uh, agreements uh, seem to be these inflexible documents. Uh, in this case, it's been something that they've been very willing to work with us in helping to make this uh, experiment work well. So very cool. And uh, so what else? How do people actually participate if they would like to join in the project? Yeah. So because this is an independent experiment, we don't have uh, funding from a bunch of corporations and such to do this at Biology Fortified. What we're launching is a uh, crowdfunding campaign to be able to fund this experiment and uh, uh, we ran through the costs and, and just a bare minimum of just doing 250 experiments for 250 vol- volunteers. Uh, we figured out that if, uh, if everybody was to donate just $25, that would cover everything from the materials to the boxes and shipping costs and everything to then ship all these experiment kits out to 250 people. But due to the number of ears of corn showing up on my uh, doorstep, uh, we can do up to 1,250 experiments uh, for 1,250 volunteers. Um, So that's just a a potentially huge 
number of uh, of opportunities for people to learn about how science is done. So we're we're doing this fundraiser on experiment.com and it's just experiment.com slash GMO experiment. Um, and uh, we're also uh, uh, taking the domain of uh, uh, GMO experiment.com. And you can just you can go to biofortified.org. We'll have a big banner to point you to it if you have any trouble finding it. But uh, one thing that we really want everybody to know is that we, we really want these kits to be available for free for kids and for schools, for teachers to be able to sign up and do this experiment with their class um, to show them how science is done. And, you know, then they can also, you know, see the effect of, you know, funny squirrels running around munching on corn. But uh, in order to do that, we're hoping that people will be able to fund it a little bit extra so that we can send these uh, experiment kits out to schools who sign up to take part in this for free. So they don't have to spend any money so that uh, the people who most need to learn about science and have the most fun doing it, uh, it that it won't t- cost them a single penny. And that's really good. I think in the idea of transparency, um, we are not being compensated by the by Monsanto Company or anybody else uh, to do this. Um, you're going to be doing this pretty much on your volunteer time. Mm-hmm. Um, any assistance I provide certainly um, will be volunteer time. And um, th- any of the dollars that are coming in are not going towards, or are they? I don't even know. Are, are they going to cover any personal time or any personal compensation? So what we're going to have to do um, is when it comes to putting together the uh, the materials and packing everything up, uh, for probably about five days straight, um, assuming we get you know all these experiment kits funded, uh, my house is going to turn into a Henry Ford menagerie. We're going to have some hired labor, uh, some people to you know to bag the ears of corn and to put. We're going to have barcodes for them so that everybody uh, uh, so we can track each ear and the experiment that goes with it. It's going to be packed in boxes. We got to buy the supplies, build the apparatuses. And so some of that is going to pay for uh, the labor for myself and for others who are actually doing that work during that time. But the rest of it, analysis and other things, it's it, that's all uh, volunteer at this point. But if we get a lot of uh, funding for this and a lot of experiments to happen, if we have anything left over, we may be able to then hire a, a grad student or a, a statistician to then uh, do a, a much more thorough job than I probably could to go through this data and make sure that we really uh, know what uh, the, re- the, uh, the conclusion is. But the basic experiment will be to place the um, coded, so you don't know which one's GM or which one's not. We do, but you won't. And mm-hmm. uh, put them on, put them outside into a natural space, and then uh, get an image at hour zero and an image at twenty four for sure, and then maybe any that are in between. You know what's mm-hmm. happening at eight hours or twelve hours or whatever. But yeah. definitely like the zero and twenty four time points. My guess is is that both will be down to a cob in no time, and I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, uh, 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 just a, a, a single chipmunk here at my place. I did some testing, and in uh, less than two hours, a single chipmunk took all the kernels off of two ears. And uh, but they were both the same, so who knows? Maybe they'll uh, they'll uh, they'll prefer one over the other when it comes to the real experiment. 
you mentioned about the the blinded part. I wanted to explain that a little bit, just a tiny bit more. One of the really important things in science, uh, when you're doing an experiment where either through accident or intention you could influence the outcome, it's very important to blind your experiment. What that means is you do the experiment, you you put attach a number to your materials, and so the person who's examining it doesn't know which one is which. So all of these ears are going to have a barcode tag in the bag, and then you can place it right on the uh, on the the, the plank uh, for the apparatus. You'll know which ear is which with the number, and we're going to have all these numbers and all these experiments in a uh, in a spreadsheet file that we'll put a password on, and we'll put it online so that everybody can download it, download the file if they want, and it'll be that'll be totally public. Then when the experiment is over, we'll release the password, and everybody can. Um, check their own results. We'll tell everybody what their own results are. And then anybody who doubts whether or not this was real, if they go, oh, wait, you uh, just switched the numbers around after you found out what their results were, they'll be able to see clearly that's not the case because we put it online before we got the results. And and that's the level of transparency we need to really make this work. And are there any special um ideas about how to bring in the anti-GM people and maybe we can put down Dr. Huber for maybe like 20 kits um, to distribute to schools to really test his hypothesis that the uh, chipmunks and squirrels will not touch the GM corn. Yeah, um, I'd love to send him a kit. And, uh, you know, we are going to be mailing these to people. I want everybody to know that your address your personal information will not be shared with anybody else kevin won't even see it i'm going to be the only one who's going to see it and and i respect everybody's privacy i really want to see people who come from diverse backgrounds and perspectives on this issue uh people who maybe believe that that the squirrels and chipmunks will actually avoid the gmo corn to try their hand at this experiment and uh, it's okay if, uh, if you turn out to be right, and it's okay if you turn out to be wrong, because everybody's going to learn something. And that's really the, the spirit of this. If, if we learn that uh, at the end of this, after putting a, a ton of corn in the, in the, the yards of people across <laughs> the country, that uh, GMO corn is something that animals avoid, that's a really great finding. And I think something that would end up on maybe even the cover of science and so it is something that I'm excited to do, and, and we'll do an objective test. And uh, so th- I did mention, you know, the, the cover of science. The goal of this, in the end, is to publish our results in a peer-reviewed journal. And yes. so could you tell us a touch more about that? Yeah, so um, so this is both a research project and an outreach project. We're trying to teach people about how science works while also doing an experiment at the same time. And so uh, we're going to uh, submit the results... Um, in uh, in the form of a scientific paper, and we're going to put it in a uh, we're going to submit it to a peer reviewed uh, journal, and uh, if we get that published, then uh, we'll have a huge acknowledgement section for all the people who helped out in this. So if you want to get your name in a scientific paper, this uh, might be one way you could do that. I think it's really cool because if it turns out that animals do reject GMO corn. As many claim, uh, this could be a very high visibility publication based on a very simple test. And uh, you think about people who spend a lot of money in government funds and never get a paper in a, in a big journal. Um, if we can show conclusively that animals will not touch GM corn, 
um, this could be, a, I would guess, a paper in our uh, country's best scientific journals. So I'm excited to see this go down. Yeah, um, when I, I can't promise that I'll read every volunteer's name during the Nobel Prize acceptance speech, but <laughs> I'll uh, try to cover maybe a couple of the, the largest donors, let's say. Um, so, yeah, you know, either way the experiment turns out, uh, it's going to be a fun experience for everybody involved. And then when we're done, we'll be thinking about and we'll be asking questions, what, what does everybody want to test next? And we'll find a question and we'll put together an experiment and we'll do this again and get everybody involved in answering another question that people keep debating about and giving and saying and talks and all that. And let's let's stop just debating about it and let's test it. Yeah, maybe we could get a bunch of uh, people to not vaccinate their children. And uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, no, let's that will never get approved by any. Um, uh, ethics review board ever <laughs> yeah well, all right so well but you, know, you can't blame me for trying um you know i'm a hypothesis tester i'm i, I, yeah. I don't know the results I, I i think that experiment is already running and it's called marin county california yeah very good so carl if, uh, one more time then uh if people really do want to participate it's uh it's a 25 dollar fee for the kit that gives you two replicates and instructions on how to do this and if you'd like to give more it uh, say you give a hundred. That's one kit for you, and then three kits that would go potentially for schools that could not afford the entry fee. So, could you um, give us again the uh, URL for where you sign up, and uh, give me a little sense on time frame, and then we'll move forward from there. The URL to remember is gmoexperiments.com. It's going to be on the scientific research crowdfunding site called experiment.com and you can go to our, our own website biofortified.org we're going to be uh providing updates and telling some of the stories about the process of getting this put together and uh, we're going to do the uh, crowdfunding for uh just under three weeks because we want to get this uh done as soon as we can and get these uh, experiment kits into the hands of people within uh, a couple of weeks after the uh, camp the funding campaign is over okay carl well thank you very much for your time for explaining this and uh, we hope to have broad 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 participation thank you very much and best wishes and uh, i'll talk to you pretty soon and thank you very much kevin Okay, and that's Carl Haro von Mogel from Biofortified uh, talking about the citizen science experiment that you can participate in. And details will also be here at Talking Biotech. We'll be right back after this short break. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. It's the weekly podcast that discusses how the newest technologies in traditional breeding and genetic engineering conspire to improve medical treatments as well as animal and plant products. The idea is to use our best tools to feed the needy and help the farmer and do so with respect to our planet. The Talking Biotech podcast is financed and produced 100% by Dr. Kevin Folta and separate from his popular outreach workshops. If you'd like to help, please write a review on iTunes or tell a friend to listen in. With every episode, our numbers grow, and your listenership is truly appreciated, as moving innovation to application requires communication. And welcome back to Talking Biotech and to our part on plant breeding and domestication. 
And it's really uh, uh, exciting today for me to have on uh, Dr. Lee Pinella, who is a plant breeder and research geneticist with the USDA ARS in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, welcome to Talking Biotech, Dr. Pinella. Thank you very much, Kevin. Yeah, hi there. So what we're really... Um, I'm always been intrigued with this because when I was a little kid, they used to have a commercial on TV that said, ever try cooking with a sugar beet? And and they would say, I do every day. And they would bring in uh, this concept of this thing called a sugar beet. And I always was under the impression that sugar came from sugar cane. And I think that's what most people um, have that association. So could you tell us a bit about what the sugar beet is and why it's important to American farming and commerce? Well, sugar beet is, it's a beet or it comes from uh, the beet family and it's relatively new as a domesticated crop, about 250 years old or so, but it's a large white beet and when I say large, maybe a foot long and three to five pounds. So uh, a big root and sugar is refined from it. Wow! So it actually is a beet, like it, so. It's a member of the beta genus. Is that the? I mean, it, it is in the same species as table beets. You, you know your red beets. Also, uh, in that um, uh, family of Swiss chard, it is also a beta vulgaris. And uh, there are leaf beets, so beets that are grown more for their greens rather than their root. And then there are fodder beets, which are much like sugar beets. They're large roots. They were developed in Europe for uh, to keep over the winter to feed their livestock. And from the fodder beet, then they selected for sugar and got what today is the sugar beet. Okay, and so when you talk about sugar that actually comes from sugar beets, about how much of the nation's sugar comes from sugar beets versus other sources? Okay, uh, we produce about 85% of the sugar that we consume domestically, so here in the U.S., and of that, about 55% comes from sugar beet and 45% comes from sugar cane. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I never knew it was that high. And I always down here in Florida, we drive by these expansive fields of sugarcane, and they seem so massive. And it's hard to believe it would be that much, but very interesting. Um, what what is what is this? So you talk a little bit about what the plant looks like. It's just basically a large white beet. Where does it come from in terms of evolution? Where did it? Where was its uh, center of origin? The center of origin of beet is the Mediterranean. It also grows wild along the North Atlantic coast and then down south um, along the Moroccan coast. And uh, it is, uh, sea beet is the wild progenitor. So that is the plant that was most likely domesticated to give us beet. And that domestication took back, uh, took place way back in Egyptian times or earlier. And so did people domesticate the sugar beet because of leaves or because they chewed on the root and found it really uh, sweet and satisfying? Or did we have any ideas? Well, probably the original beet, so the sea beet was domesticated for the leaves. It's kind of a pot herb to use in soups and things, much as we would a, a lettuce or a spinach. It, um, we know that the root was eaten but 
it wasn't particularly sweet. So no sweeter than a, a red table beet would be today. And uh, throughout time, the, especially in, say, Roman and Greek times, the table beet, especially when they found the, the mutations that gave them red, was um, very much a medicinal plant. You know, that color that was the color of blood uh, was really prized by the, the, um, yeah, the doctors and physicians of the time. Oh, very interesting. And, and so when, when, it, when you mentioned before that it was only maybe a 250-year-old crop, what really was the uh, impetus to accelerate its development in more modern times? Well, there's actually two things that happened. The first one was they were able to measure the amount of sucrose in a solution and to select for something with more sucrose or sugar, you need to be able to measure it. So this happened, and this happened, oh, back in the late 1700s, and it was looked at in Europe, in France and Germany, as a, a, a potential source of sugar, and then Britain blockaded Napoleon, and Napoleon put a real heavy uh, subsidy on developing sugar from beets because all contact to the colonies where they were getting their sugar from cane was cut off, and um, the people wanted sugar. So this is when it really took off as a modern-day crop. And maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit here in terms of the interview, but when you talk about those older kinds of sugar beets, how much sugar or sucrose did they have when they were measuring that, and how does it compare to the contemporary sugar beet? Um, they had maybe, oh, 10 or 12 percent at, at most. Uh, table beet has 6 to 8 percent, maybe, uh, red beet. And today... Um, our high-yielding varieties grown under optimum conditions can be 18%, and that's by uh, fresh weight. So 18% of that beet that you're holding is is sugar, and if you take the water out of there, it, it's up close to 75% of what's what's left. That's pretty remarkable from a plant science point of view, that if you think about having 18% of your cellular mass being sugar, store, stored carbohydrate, that's got to be a pretty, uh, a pretty tremendous feat. So, so, uh, how, how, um, so when you talk about these gigantic changes that have occurred over time through breeding probably more than anything else, right? It's just breeding and selection to increase that sucrose? Right. And, and no, what, that's that, that, absolutely right. And, and so what are some of the other traits that you f are working on today to, uh, are you still trying to increase the sugar or are there other agronomic or horticultural aspects that you're focusing on? Well, you can imagine one way to look at a, a beet that's 18% sugar is a big bag of sugar sitting in the soil and all kinds of disease organisms, microorganisms, are very interested in getting at that sugar. And so disease resistance, especially uh, resistance to uh, soil-borne diseases, is the major focus of my breeding program, but certainly there are other diseases, uh, viruses, as well as foliar fungal diseases that attack um, 
all, all different parts of the plant. And so much of the breeding today is, is focused on um, finding disease resistance in the wild relatives. I pre-breed, so I really breed for seed companies. I release yeah. enhanced germplasm, not hybrids. Yeah. So, you know, and I get I get requests for disease resistance from table beet breeders who who want the resistance in sugar beet because sugar beet's a much more valuable crop, and so a lot of that has been done in sugar beet and hasn't been done in table beet. So they've actually got to cross sugar beet to a table beet and then cross back while selecting for disease resistance to a, uh, a table beet type. And the wild relatives coming, like the European ones you mentioned before, and, and are there a good source of wild genetics that have these traits? And how long does it take to maybe do a generation of sugar beet and actually be able to, uh, let's say, bring in or introgress a gene from a wild relative into cultivated sugar beet? How long might that take? That can take a... A good deal of time. Uh, sugar beet is a biennial crop, so that stored sugar in the first year is to provide energy for it to flower in the second year. And so, um, now in nature, we find though a sea beet is we find some that are biennial and some that are annual. But for a biennial plant, then um, you you need a, a vernalization, which is a period of cold or winter to go through to trigger the flowering. And so even if we push it in a greenhouse and in a cold room, it's at least seven to eight months to go from seed to seed. And in the field, it's, um, well, it's more than a year. Wow. So as a breeder, you're looking at a particular challenge, maybe not as bad as breeding a an oak tree or something, but certainly that extra year really makes a difference. Yes, it does. Um, one of the things that does help us is, you know, as a plant breeder, you're looking at what you can select. And one of the advantages we have with sugar beet is that we're selecting for roots, not for, for seeds. And that means for instance, if I were selecting for wheat, I would look at wheat and then I would harvest the seed from the ones that looked good. Um, and that's great if you're self-pollinated, but if you have pollen from other plants, you don't make as much progress. With the sugar beet, we harvest the roots and then we grow up just the selected ones and let them interpollinate to make uh, seed for the next generation. So it's uh, it's quite a process. Can you make any predictions just by looking at seedlings? So like if you grew them, say, on a Petri dish for a week, could you see differences in roots that might suggest maybe one would be better than another in the long-term performance? No, but we are um, able to use molecular markers, especially for single gene traits such as disease resistance. And in that way, we're able to make progress much more quickly too so um, we do have markers for some of the most important uh, resistances to disease and those markers allow us then to make those early selections so that we don't have to grow up quite so many plants yeah and just uh, we do talk about molecular markers here but I'll just to clarify this is a, a piece of DNA that we can that has been identified to associate with a disease resistance or sometimes a disease sensitivity that if in the laboratory we can amplify uh, this piece of DNA 
using the PCR, which is that technique that allows us to amplify DNA like, like they do in crime scenes. Uh, we can we can do this with plants and make predictions about plants that are likely to be high performing or have disease resistance later in life and it makes a breeder's life tremendously easier because they don't have to plant as many selections in the field you can exclude or include uh, some plants just from a quick lab screen from a seedling so um, just always good to clarify that just for some of the folks who who aren't necessarily uh, up to speed on all the terminology but what about other kinds of biotechnology? I know that uh, a lot of the growers in, in your area, in Colorado, do have some uh, Roundup resistance or the glyphosate tolerance traits. Is that the only trait that's currently used in beets, and are there others on the way? That, that certainly is the only one that's um, used right now, the glyphosate resistance. Uh, I, I, I am a public breeder, so in a sense... I don't breed for the farmer. I breed enhanced germplasm. Now, the seed companies, I am sure, are working on other traits, but they don't share that information um, easily. They're, they, they have a lot of proprietary information. Um, I, I do know that there is some uh, work on looking at the potential for virus resistance. And again, that would be... Uh, a, um, some kind of uh, viral coat protein or something like that. But there aren't, at least up here, any large-scale tests right now. Um, sugar beet has grown very widely in Europe, and uh, Europe is not very friendly to um, advances in, in um, ge- genetically modified uh, sugar beets. So they're that they're not putting as much effort into it as maybe other crops are. So where exactly are sugar beets grown in the United States, and what are some of the reasons why farmers might adopt sugar beets? Well, sugar beets are grown mostly in the northern tier of states, and that's uh, right now Montana, the Red River Valley, which is uh, you know the area between Minnesota and North Dakota. It's grown in Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska and uh, Idaho, and also they grow some in Michigan. And there's not much else high value that can be grown up there. If you if you look at a per acre uh, um, return for a farmer, sugar beet is handled pretty much as a row crop. Although you do need some specialized equipment to to uh, manage it. Um, but it falls in value per acre between a vegetable crop and a row crop. So it was called the mortgage maker in the old days because it was the the crop in the rotation that the farmer was sure to make some money on. And so what does the future look like for sugar beets? And just the traditional (laughs) breeding and some of the uh, next big breakthroughs, or do you see it actually competing more with sugar cane uh, going forward? It's, yeah, competition with sugarcane is, it's not competition in the sense that, you know, a farmer has a choice. I can plant either a sugar beet or sugarcane because the uh, climate requirements are so different. So in that sense, um, there's not direct competition. Uh, but one of the areas that we're, we're looking 
to see more use of sugar beet is in biofuels, um, especially ethanol or any kind of fermented biofuel because obviously what most crops that are used as biofuel, they try and get the starch down to sugar so that they can feed it to whatever the organisms are that make the ethanol or other byproducts. And, and so sugar beet is a natural for that because it's already in the form of sucrose. Yes, that goes right into the pipeline. You don't have to do a lot of unusual pretreatments like you do with uh, other kinds of cellulose or other types of uh, bio, potential biofuels. And so, so it's a fuel, and it's also a food, and it's uh, really a crop that everybody is exposed to in one way or another, but we know so little about. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on Talking Biotech. It was it was fun talking to you, and uh, uh, yeah, let me know when it comes out. I'd like to hear it. Yeah, will do. And and that's really uh, really the idea here, that we learn a lot about crops that we encounter every day but know so little about. So thank you very much to Dr. Lee Pinella from the USDA ARS Service in Fort Collins, Colorado. And also thank you to Carl Haro von Mogel, uh, who uh, talk, spoke to us in the beginning of the podcast from biofortified.org. And I really do urge you to send the 25 bucks at gmoexperiment.com where your entire contribution will go to fund this experiment. And our idea is to do the uh, shine the light on what are the data for real. I mean, what, does the da- what do the data really tell us when we look at all of them and we get hundreds of replicates? And this is the way we need to be doing science. So once again, uh, thank you very much for listening and for expanding your horizons about food and the future of food. Uh, My name is Kevin Fulta, and I thank you very much for listening again to another week of Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.